0: We uh, continue in Genesis, and uh, the title of today's message is Why Male and Female? Um, Did you grow up with a family tradition, um, something that was just a part of your family, but you never really understood why? If you're of a particular ethnicity, and I guess that would include every one of us, um, maybe you eat some food that other people in Canada don't eat. For example, when I was a young boy, um, my mother, she would make borscht. And my neighbors of British background didn't understand why we ate that soup. She'd also make these special, we called them New Year's cookies at New Year's Oli Bolen. And no one else around us made them. So, we didn't eat beans on toast, we weren't very good at tea, and I had really no good explanation for why we ate borscht and New Year's cookies. As I grew up, I um, learned a little bit more about our family history. Eventually, I went to the Netherlands and to Ukraine, and then I started to understand. Now, some of you eat chicken feet. And I'm not sure exactly why, but... Don't don't have to invite me to join you. I will if you invite me. But sometimes we just have a tradition, and we've grown up with it, and we're not sure why. Today, one of the most contested things in our society is the definition of of marriage. Um, This is Willingdon's uh, definition of marriage. It's in our human sexuality paper, which you can pick up in the Resource Center if you want to. I'll read it. Marriage is an exclusive covenant relationship for life between one man and one woman, publicly recognized and consummated by sexual union, providing an environment for bearing and nurturing children. Now, throughout most of history, that would have been a, just a very acceptable definition of marriage, but it is quite contested in our day. So we're talking about why male and female today. We're talking about marriage, and that's why I decorated this room the way it's decorated. Um, Some think I went a little overboard, but um, I just wanted it to be nice. No, actually this was for a volunteer appreciation banquet, but it does have that feel of a wedding happening, doesn't it? Yeah, it was quite beautiful. In our Canadian society, marriage can be lifelong or It can be for a season. It can be legalized or common law. It can be same-sex or heterosexual. It can be with one spouse or a succession of spouses. The definition is quite elastic. Marriage, it's just this commitment you make to another person for at least a period of time based on some emotional connection. But it doesn't have to be permanent in our society. So why would Willingdon have this particular definition? Where would we base it? What's the origin of our definition of marriage? And so that's why we need to go back to Scripture, to Genesis chapter 2, page 2 of your Bibles. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The Lord God continues to be the main actor in the creation story. What did he have in mind when he created us, male and female? God says it is not good that the man should be alone. That stands in stark contrast to the conclusion of chapter 1, where God says that what he had created was very good. There's an obvious pattern in the first chapter Good, it is good, it is good. There's a sevenfold good, and then it's concluded by very good. And so for the first time in the creation story, something is considered to be not good. Why? The language is actually emphatic there. God, he observes the, the aloneness of man and recognizes that something is missing. Something is not right with man's situation, and so he decides to make a helper fit for him. Someone suitable for him. God wanted someone like Adam, but different from him. To compliment him. To be his companion. To be his helper. I think my wife's favorite verse, her life verse, is, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. She likes to help me. For example, when I'm coming to church, I I get dressed. And she will ask, Why are you wearing that? And my answer would be, well, I'm going to church, I should be clothed, and usually I change into something else. And then on the way to church, I'm driving, and don't you see that car? Watch it! How would I ever get here without my wife? I probably would have an accident, I would be wearing something very different, I wouldn't be well clothed. She is my helper. Actually, that definition of helper is not exactly what is meant here. In English, the word helper often has this connotation of inferiority, of subordination. Usually when we use the word helper in English, we're talking about a lesser role, a, a demeaning role. But in the Hebrew, there's no such connotation. In fact, if you study the word helper, the one who most often is helping another is God. God is the strong one who helps his people. So take note of that. Helper actually, what it emphasizes is the essential contribution to the person being helped. Not their inferiority, not their inadequacy. So Adam, he had been commanded to work in the garden, to keep the garden, to rule over creation, to be fruitful and multiply. And he just cannot do that without the help of a woman. I imagine... Adam naming the livestock, the birds, the beasts. That was a way of demonstrating his authority over creation. But as he's doing that, God observes what he's doing. And he's going, okay, bird, 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 another bird, beast, 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 another beast. And God looks at Adam differentiate a little bit. And so Adam looks at the birds and he says, yellow bird, white bird, black bird. Some big cat small cat and god think oh my goodness he needs a helper so he makes a helper fit for him and big cat becomes lion tiger jaguar cheetah a lot more detail and bird becomes owl and eagle and crow and kite and swallow and robin we men we need help right right? (laughs) Adam uh, needed Eve's help to rule, to have dominion, to multiply. Eve Eve was not created just to be Adam's sidekick. No, man needs woman, woman needs man. And together they just express this wonderful duality of gender that God created. God created us male and female, and behold, it was very good, God said in chapter 1 verse 31. So, first point in your outline, line man and woman they complement each other in profound ways. Man and woman were created to complement one another in profound ways. And I think it's important for us to recognize that interaction with the opposite sex it's actually necessary for our growth, for our self-understanding. Whether we're single or married, we're not designed to live in isolation. In fact, The greatest punishment meted out in our society is solitary confinement. We are not meant to live alone. We need each other in family, in church family, in the workplace, in society. We need each other. The opposite sex isn't just some strange creature from another planet. No, the opposite sex is God's gift to you. God's gift. We need each other in life groups. We need each other as we live community together. We need each other when we live family. We need each other in friendship as well, all of us. The scriptures continue, chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Remember the first poem in Scripture? The first poem in Scripture is Genesis 1, verse 27, where the creation of man and woman in the image of God is celebrated. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the first poem in scripture. The second poem in scripture is verse 23 of chapter 2. And this celebrates the oneness that is to exist between man and woman. The woman is taken from Adam's ribs, from his side. Man and woman, they stand beside one another. I really like Matthew Henry's comment on this verse not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet. To be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. So God forms man out of man's own flesh, and God brings the woman to the man. God is officiating the first wedding in the garden, He brings the woman to be the man's wife. And Adam, he just bursts into this exuberant poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew, there's this word play: Man is ish and woman is Ishan. Adam actually names himself in relation to his wife. They're connected. They complement one another. So man and woman together, they inspire poetry. They inspire poetry. Why poetry? Well, the purpose of writing poetry, of course, is to express heartfelt thoughts and and emotions in a manner that would be difficult to convey by any other means. With poetry, there's something deeply personal in the words, in the images, in the metaphors, in in the rhyming patterns. Something is being communicated that almost goes beyond words. It's an attempt to express the sublime. So when my three daughters went off to university and I was feeling their departure, the way that I had to express what I was feeling, to approximate what I was feeling, was to write poetry. I wrote poems for each one, and they were gracious enough to put those poems on their dorm walls. But if you love someone, if you fall in love with something, poetry, it comes, words that express uh, that managed to express something beyond what you would normally be able to say. So God creates Adam and Eve, and it inspires poetry. It's interesting to note that even in scientific literature today, when scientists are talking about the earliest humans, it's not uncommon for them to use the names Adam and Eve. And Eve, what am I talking about? For example, in 1987, a group of geneticists, they published a surprising study in the journal Nature. And they had examined the mitochondrial DNA taken from 147 people from all of the racial groups found on planet Earth. And they concluded that every person on Earth, without exception... On Earth today, 7.5 billion people, we all trace our lineage back to a single common female ancestor, and they named her Mitochondrial Eve. What about the male side of things? Well, a sampling of Y-chromosome DNA across a wide range of ethnicities shows that humans trace back to one male ancestor, affectionately known as Y-chromosomal Adam. So there you have it, mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam. And one article I was reading was that they never met. (laughs) What do you think? I have a sneaking suspicion that somehow they met. How else would we explain our existence? It's just interesting. Interesting that even in science, when scientists are looking for language to talk about what they discover, they go back to Adam and Eve, one common female ancestor, one common male ancestor. And so, to answer the question why male and female, we need to go back to our origins. Jesus, when he wants to think about the foundation of his teaching, the origins of humanity, where does he go? He goes back to Genesis. In Matthew chapter 19, uh, some religious leaders are having a conversation about divorce and remarriage, and there's this one school of thought that says that a man can only divorce his wife in the case of adultery. And there's another school of thought that says that a man can divorce his wife even if his wife has only burned his toast. You might think that's funny, but it was actually true. In Matthew 19, look at what we find. 19 verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's going back to Genesis 1, verse 27. And, then, and he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis two twenty-four. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus, when he's looking for a foundation for his teaching on divorce and remarriage, he goes back to Genesis 1.27 and 2.24. He quotes Genesis 2.24, which reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. What is meant by leave? You see, in ancient Israel, when a son got married, he would not move a long distance from his parents. He would actually most often live quite close to his parents. Uh, the son would inherit his father's land. So, what is meant by leave? They, the sons, they left their parents in the sense that they put their wife's well, welfare above the welfare of their parents. The primary bond after marriage was with the spouse, not with one's parents. The kinship between a man and a woman, it overrode duty to one's parents. So when a husband does not do this, what happens to the marriage relationship? What happens to a marriage relationship when a man marries a woman, but the primary allegiance of the husband is still to his mother, for example? And the mother is offering advice and meddling in that marriage. It complicates that marriage, right? No matter what culture we come from, if our parents are meddling in our marriages, it becomes really complex. There's wisdom in what God has ordained. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. So in marriage, God is knitting together a man and a woman. They become one unit not only physically through, the, through sexual union, but become one emotionally, mentally, spiritually. That's what God intended. Christopher Ewan said something interesting about God's math. He said that, you know, God created Adam, one person, and out of one, God made two, Adam and Eve, and then brought them together in the marriage union to make two one. That's God's math. So God designed marriage to be a profound one-flesh union reflecting who God is. And that one flesh language, it's it's very specific, it's very concrete, it's physical. Man and woman, they have one and only one bodily organ specifically designed for a complement. And you all know what I'm talking about. And when these two organs come together, they form one flesh union, quite literally. So God's perspective on marriage is not rooted in bigotry, it's rooted in biology, just the way we were made. Something else that I find fascinating, when a man and a woman join through sexual union, it actually alters their neurochemistry. It happens on the subconscious level. There's a rewiring that happens in the brain. There's a physiological bonding that unites the two persons emotionally and mentally. That's just the way we were designed. So in Canadian society, if we think we know better and think we can define marriage in a rather elastic way, that we can say that, oh, you know, sexual activity, it's just the domain of two consenting persons. It doesn't matter whether people stay together or not. You can do that without, with love or without love. You can be committed or uncommitted. You can do that, you know, in a heterosexual union or some other kind of union. It doesn't matter. What matters are your emotional needs and your physical desires. That's what's paramount. If we say that in our society, we are just denying a very fundamental reality about who we are as men and women. We're just going like this and trying to act as if what God has created is not real. Sam Alberry, commenting on the promiscuity in our culture, wrote, Sexuality is a little like a post-it note, and the more that union is forged and then broken, the more our capacity for deep and abiding unity is diminished. You see, God's intention is that in marriage, we become one flesh, an intimate union. And it demands faithfulness. It demands exclusivity. That's just the way we were designed. We can't change it. To understand the biblical wisdom around marriage, we need to look at some more scripture, I think. In the Old Testament, The Old Testament teaches that marriage was designed to picture God's covenant relationship with his people, God's love for his people, his faithfulness to his people. In fact, in Genesis 2.24, when God says that a man should hold fast to his wife, that is covenant language. It is to be an enduring relationship. God, he's always steadfast in his love. He's unchanging in his love. He's always faithful. If God enters into a relationship with a people. He never breaks the covenant. The people of God, knowing that, are to be faithful in their marriage relationships. Malachi chapter 2, the people of God are wondering, why doesn't God hear our prayers? We come with offerings of worship, why doesn't God receive them? And this is what we read, Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God calls for, in fact, he commands faithfulness. In the New Testament, Jesus, the bridegroom, he gives his life to make possible a new covenant between God and his people. And the marriage relationship, including sexual union, it's to image that relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five, verse 29, "For no one ever hated his own, his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body." And then he quotes Genesis 2:24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This mystery is profound, Paul writes. Profound is the word mega. Marriage is a mega-mystery. The marriage union is to point to something beyond itself. It's a shadow of an everlasting reality. Christ bonded with His church forever. There's no marriage in heaven, but we, the people of God, are wed with the Lamb of God. So the ultimate purpose of marriage, the ultimate purpose, is to point to an everlasting reality, the union between Jesus and His bride, a union that models God's faithfulness and Jesus' union with us. That's what God designed marriage to be. It's not just for a season of life. It's for life on earth. It's not just rooted in biology. It's rooted in who God is, who our Creator is. The sexual revolution of the 1960s championed free love, and we've all been impacted by that revolution. The sexual revolution of the 1960s, it sought to sever the link between the act of sex and the purpose of sex. Birth control technologies, they enabled us to think about consequence-free sex. Uh, Sex without commitment, sex not thinking about children. The TV industry, the movie industry, celebrates this vision of sex. What do you think is the most uh, watched or, or most important TV series according to Hollywood Insiders? According to Hollywood Insiders, the number one TV series of all time is Friends. And if you've watched Friends, then like me, you've chuckled a bit. Those six friends are actually quite funny. They say a lot of funny things about life. But you find yourself also laughing about the kind of relationships they engage in. And the series, it champions casual sex without consequence. And so if you watch episode after episode, if you're like me, you become accustomed to seeing what you see. Casual sex without consequence. When we think about sex, the power of sex I I think a helpful image is the image of a river. The Fraser River is a beautiful river. It's a powerful river. But the Fraser River, to not damage the farmland and those living around it, the river needs to stay within its banks. When the Fraser River overflows its banks, it is very, very destructive. God created sex to stay within certain boundaries when we play with it and think that we can go outside of the bounds established by God, sex becomes very destructive. In fact, in our society today, with all the free love that there is, pleasure has been idolized. Sex has actually been trivialized. Sex is not valued more highly today than at creation. It's actually valued much less. It is, our view of sex is much lower than what God intended. When he created us. People are objectified. People are used. Children are often marginalized. More marriages are broken than ever before. And there's some, a reality in our society that we don't like to think about. There are a lot of unwanted pregnancies and abortions. And that's a mark on our society. We find ourselves increasingly confused in our understanding of sexuality. This hasn't happened by chance. We, we observe our society not evolving, but actually devolving. As we separated ourselves more and more from God and from his design for us. Because we think we know better. So again, we need to go back to the scriptures, go back to Genesis. What did God design? What did he have in mind? What do they teach? And the scriptures teach that the marriage, the relationship, it was designed by God with us in mind we are to be a one flesh union physically mentally emotionally spiritually and what god created what he had in mind was very very good beautiful and as the people of god we need to celebrate that never apologize for it because what our society offers us is so much less than what God designed for us. Sexuality, it's a gift. It's designed for oneness. It's designed for the continuation of human life. It's this pleasurable celebration of a covenant commitment, a man and a woman coming together to create life, children. So God designed designed marriage to be a union that bonds two lives and creates life. What about sex outside of marriage, you might say? You know, everyday life, sex is pretty casual. It's commercialized, uh, pretty cheap. What about sex outside of marriage? Well, if we truly understand God's design for us, I think the answer is obvious. That's why it's so important to go back to our foundations, to Genesis. The creation story, it ends in this way. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's just innocent delight. No shame. It's an image of openness, of transparency. It's beautiful. The relationship isn't clouded by sin. There isn't any hint of unfaithfulness, of of intrigue, of rivalry, of bitterness. Imagine a world like that. Our world today is so different. But just for a minute, imagine what God had in mind. God had in mind a man and a woman loving God and loving one another. A man and a woman walking in his presence, full of joy. A man and a woman complimenting one another, helping one another, working together, and when married, remaining committed, staying together. Unfaithfulness in the beginning didn't exist. Man and woman walking together and together having children imaged after them. Children being raised in loving homes. Imagine a world like that. That's what God intended. And as the people of God, we are to live toward that. Yes, we live in a broken society that lives very far from that reality that God created for us, but the good news is that in Jesus, we can live toward that. We can be restored as men and women. Our marriages can be restored, our families can be restored, and our children can live under the blessing of a husband and wife that love each other, love God, and love their children. So as the people of God, let's live in that direction. Amen? Let's live in that direction for God's glory. You read that story and you say, okay, well, what happened? (laughs) Why are we where we are today? Well, that's next week, Genesis chapter 3. But for today, let's remember God's design for it. Celebrate it and live toward it. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, again, we just thank you for the gift of your written word. Thank you that we can go back to your word and by your grace understand how you've designed us, what you have intended for us, your purpose for us as singles and as married couples. Lord, I pray that we, whether we're single or married, that we would celebrate being male and female. That we would learn to relate to one another in a way that truly honors you and honors men and women. I pray for healthy, wonderful relationships here at Willingdon. I pray that our discipling relationships, our our life groups, our community groups, our fellowship groups, that Men and women, whether they're single or married, would feel included and valued and loved the way that you love them. I thank you that your purposes for marriage are good. And so, Lord, for those of us who are married, I pray that we would live toward that. And if we're single, I pray that we would understand that in you, Jesus, we are whole. I thank you that your purposes for us are good I pray that in a society that lives far from what you designed, Lord, that we would remain true to your word and trust you to lead us in that direction, to empower us, to live in the way that you've called us to live, to heal us where we're broken and we're weak. Thank you that you're with us in all things. I pray your blessing on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.